0: Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 485th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast. I'm Scott Feinberg, the podcast host and the executive editor of THR's awards coverage. And for those of you tuning in, we are recording this episode in front of an audience at the Boulder Theater in beautiful Boulder, Colorado, as part of the 19th annual Boulder International Film Festival. Today, for the second year in a row, I have the honor and privilege of sitting down with the recipient of Biff's Highest Honor, the Outstanding Performer of the Year Award, prior to its presentation. And this year, that person holds a particularly special place in my heart because I had the opportunity to speak with him once before, 19 years ago, when I was still in high school, and he was kind enough to grant me a telephone interview about his life and career. I'm sure he doesn't remember it, but I certainly do. Once described by Pauline Kael as a wizard at eager, manic, full-of-life roles, and by David Denby as a real actor, he is one of just 36 people alive today who have won the Best Actor Academy Award. His coming 38 years ago for his unforgettable portrayal of the composer Antonio Salieri in the film Amadeus. And earlier this very week he added another statuette to his mantelpiece when he accepted the Best Ensemble in a Drama Series SAG Award on behalf of the cast of the second season of the HBO limited series The White Lotus, on which he played the hilarious Bert DeGrasso. That show was released in 2022, hot on the heels of another hit show on which he starred, the Disney Plus limited series Moon Knight. In other words, at the age of 83 and after 52 years as a screen actor, this gentleman is as busy and at the center of things as ever and is eminently worthy of the Boulder International Film Festival's Outstanding Performer of the Year award. Would you please join me in welcoming to the Boulder International Film Festival and to the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter podcast, Mr. F. Murray Abraham. Well, now you know the real me. <laughs> Thank you for coming to Boulder. It's great to see you. Real pleasure. I had a good time. Come back soon and stay, stay often. But um, so I want to I begin right at the beginning for people who may not know. Where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I'm originally from Pittsburgh, but uh,
1: my father's, we're blue collar people in my family, um, steel workers and coal miners and. Railroad workers, and um, when my brother and I were quite young, we, we moved to El Paso, Texas. I grew up on the border speaking Spanish. Uh, I grew up about four blocks from the Rio Grande, and all my playmates were Mexican, and I, I grew up speaking Spanish. I had to, uh, when I decided to become an actor, I had to learn to speak without the accent. Uh, and, uh, and what you hear now is all fake. <laughs> I really sound like the character that I played in Scarface. Yes, which we will come to. Now, the F in F. Murray Abraham. That's, I made that up. It's, it's actually a tribute to my father. My father's name was, was Farid Frederick, and I just took the F and stuck it in front of my name. Besides, it, it makes it stand out. It certainly does, yeah. Uh, it's a good but conversation But people have all starter. kinds of ideas of what the
0: F stands for. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So... What people may not know is that up until, I think, about the age of 16, you were a bit of a troublemaker, right? What was going on? Well, it was, uh, in those days, it was the beginnings of the gangs
1: along the border. Uh, we, we made a gang, too, for self-defense. We weren't real tough. We pretended. There were some bad guys, though, in town. And it was the beginnings of the Crips and the Bloods. They, they were called Pachucos. And they were the guys, La, la Raza. Same thing there as in, uh, along the border of San Diego. And that was the beginning of those gangs. They had to. It's, uh, they, the Mexicans were all second-class citizens. They were treated very badly. And we're, we're poor. Anyhow, the point is uh, we grew up in a gang. And uh, we did some stupid things. We didn't really hurt anybody badly. But we, uh, <laughs> we we damaged property. We did stupid things like that. I mean, really stupid. And when I was about 16, for some reason, this teacher said, try this. She That teacher, Lucia P. Hutchins, high school, long time ago. She said, try this. It's changed my life. And I began to, I broke away from the gang and uh, started to teach myself how to speak better English. And uh, I I had... The first time I stepped on stage, I knew where I belonged. You know, that's nothing but good fortune. It really is good luck. Changed my life. And I always felt that I was really good. I mean, I don't know where I got that idea from because I just did one performance and then shortly after that I won an award in the state of Texas. And uh, that was a scholarship to go to college, otherwise my father would never have paid for me to go to college, not to be an actor. And uh, that scholarship, by the way, to go to college, it was $100. <laughs> now,
0: That's the way it should be. That got you into college. Yeah. What made you, not that long after, decide to get out of there?
1: Well, I, after I spent a year in, in, uh, at college, uh, and you know, acting and working in building sets, I decided I just wanted to seek my fortune in L.A., So I thumbed my way to Los Angeles. You could do, you could hitchhike easily in those days. It wasn't a problem. A lot of people were doing it. Uh, On the road was a very big book with us in those days. Uh, Kerouac. Mm -hmm. And when I got to L.A.,
0: I started to seek. I started to try to learn to be an actor, and I studied and performed. And now you didn't stay in L.A. for very long, and I wonder. I mean, I've read accounts. Sometimes information is inaccurate, of course, online or elsewhere. But that. I mean, were you? living on the be- sleeping on the beach, like really struggling? Oh, uh, it was a lot easier to live out
1: there. Uh, it was a little dangerous in Venice, Venice Beach uh, in those days, but because it was dangerous, it was, it was really cheap because uh, nobody wanted to live there, you know. Uh, and you could sleep on the beach too, you know. It, it was a little dicey, but you could do it. Now you can't do that, and Venice is expensive, like everything in L.A., like everything everywhere. But uh, uh, in fact, I was parking cars, for quite a while and then I started working backstage at UCLA and then I finally broke through and did a play for Ray Bradbury God rest his he was a great man yeah he's a great man and he became a friend he, he became friends with many people he was that kind of guy and uh, he uh, after that play during the run of that play it's called uh, the Wonderful Ice Cream Suit based on a terrific short story anyway I decided then that I didn't want to to stay in L.A. I didn't like the way actors thought of themselves. They were good actors. But I thought of myself as a great actor. <laughs> I mean, I just, I always felt that way. And I thought, I want to do the classics because I don't believe you can be called great unless you do the classics. And that's the way I felt. And I wanted a better, a, a good teacher. So I went to New York and studied with
0: Uta Hagen. And Let I'm me study you for one second because before you went, this is November 1965. Wow. Before you go to New York, you did acquire something important in LA, right? What? I believe that's where you met your wife, right? Oh! oh. <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: no, no. That was uh, that's that's the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. Was the day I met my wife. Absolutely. We were we were married in uh, we were married in 1962 and. We were married, we were married for 62 years. My wife, uh, I don't know why I brought this husband. My wife passed away recently, uh, no, no, but, uh, but uh, we carry on, you know. But it was,
0: uh, we were together for over 62 years. And you started to build this this beautiful life together in New York in November 1965. You were, as you started to say <laughs> when I interrupted you, you were starting uh, with, a, with a now legendary acting teacher. What what can you tell us about Uta Hagen and what you learned from her? Well, Uta
1: Hagen was uh, my only teacher. Uh, she liked me, and, and she uh, respected my work. But you like people you respect, you know? Anyhow, the point is... Uh, I became a favorite uh, among others. Uh, when I say that, I became a, one of the monitors. I was allowed to turn off and on the lights, you know, <laughs> when they did the, their scenes. That was a big honor. Anyway, uh, an interesting commentary for those of you who are students or will become students. The stronger uh, your teacher is, the more charismatic he or she is the more you will follow under their. if you don't watch yourself, you will uh, forget everything you brought to the table and try to please them, try to do exactly what they say. And that's what happened to me. So after over a year with her, my I began to get worse and worse and worse. I mean, I began to lose track of who I was. I wasn't any good anymore. And uh, the, the last class I took with her I was doing, uh, I think it was the, uh, the chorus from Henry V. Um, uh, she stopped me in the middle of the presentation, which she never did, and she said to the class, he has a great talent, and he pisses all over it. <laughs> so that was the last class I took with her. Um, and, I, and I left, and as soon as I left, I, I started to recover myself and my old instincts, but she knew what was happening between us, and I think that's why she did what she did to get rid of me.
0: So those those first, I don't know, let's say 15 years in New York, you oh, Wait are, a minute, my first job in New York. Please? I was a Macy's Santa. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. How did that pay? I
0: was there for one month, and I was a Macy's Santa. <laughs> I mean, the variety of stuff that you did during those again, let's say about first 15 years in New York, off-Broadway, Broadway, Broadway, but also street theater, children's theater, you were the epitome of a a jobbing actor, right? A guy who's out there just, you know, enjoying it because you love the craft and you'll do it where you can, right? That's right. And it was primarily, and this may come as a surprise to people who first discovered you with Amadeus and in the years since, you were primarily working in comedy, right? Yes, always. So was it surprising to you when things begin like i guess i think you in some ways maybe prefer comedy right yeah
1: i'd like to make i like to make people laugh
0: so when <laughs> <laughs> see <laughs>
1: no that's my talent i i think i was i i like to see them laugh sure. i love to tell jokes can't tell jokes anymore <laughs> Like Bert, Bert learned. You might <laughs> offend too many people, <laughs> and you can get into some serious trouble too. But uh, yes. I think the jokes, uh, if they ever come back, they're really acting. They're like they're like whole little plays. Anyhow, um, <laughs> I
0: like to make people laugh, and I think Salieri was funny. Yeah, he definitely, especially the old version, older yeah. Salieri, first screen job, 1971. For George C. S- with George C. Scott? Yeah, they might be giants. They might yeah. be giants. Was screen acting always something that you were hoping to do or did it just kinda oh, come along? Oh no, I knew I was gonna win an Oscar. Really? <laughs> Every actor does.
1: <laughs> it's no big deal. But I really knew it. You know, you feel it. You have to. You gotta think you can do these things when you set out. Otherwise, how are you gonna how are you gonna get it done? Right. You know, it's uh, it's it's a disappointing, tough business, but you got to have something to help you along, some kind of hope. And my hope, I was certain, and
0: I'm certain I'm going to get another one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> well, so I, there some of these early films that followed that you were you were not the first person on the call sheet, but you were doing strong work in small parts. Where if we look back at it now. People perk up, and they, oh, my God, it's F. Murray Abraham. But at the time, I think, I'd love to hear what you remember about a few of these. So can I prod you on a handful? Let's go with, first, the unnamed, I believe, partner of the cop played by Al Pacino in Sidney Lumet's Serpico. This is 1973. Yeah. Yeah, that was a good scene. Uh, I'll tell you, first of all, working
1: with Sidney Lumet is an experience I'm so... Sorry I never worked with him again But uh, that was about two weeks work in New York City And um, uh, I don't know how many of you uh, remember that film But in the scenes, in the scenes where uh, Thank you In the scenes where we are that I'm in with Al uh, Al and I knew each other for years in New York Before while we were struggling We weren't friends but we knew each other it's a small town, New York. And uh, it is. A small, anyhow, uh, show business. But uh, when he became prominent and famous, as he was in, 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 uh, in that movie already, he was really a very generous actor. He, he gives to his fellow actors a lot. For example, in that little scene of ours, a few lines... He would say, did you, did you like that take? Do you want to do it again? you want to do some improvisation? That's the kind of actor he was. Nice. And in that scene, we were supposed to be in the middle of winter. If you'll try to, if you see it again, think of this. It was, we were all in overcoats and cold, and it was so hot that day. <laughs> so when you look at it, you
0: say, they're really acting. Right. <laughs> Let's go to the next one. You were a car mechanic like your father in the sunshine boys Uh, for which George Burns won an Oscar. And what you're seeing though is with Walter Matthau. Right. Um, pretty funny. He's looking for an agency or something. And he comes and. but anyway, just, uh, I guess just a pure coincidence that you were playing a car mechanic or was that, it was
1: was good luck because I didn't know I worked in the in the garage with my father. Yeah. It's a good mechanic, but, uh, uh, it was a half a day's work and, and try to catch that movie that, that's a good movie but also that scene is a very good scene very brief a half a day's work and, and it was really it, it turned out well you never know when you do it it could be crap but this was good and Mister and, and Walter Houston has a reputation for being very tough he was terrific with me Matthew, I mean, yeah, we got yeah. along very well but uh, yeah that's a good scene when that film was shot I hadn't done too much film work really I had done commercials which is where I began to learn how to act in front of a camera. Uh, But uh, between the making of the film and the uh, uh, release of the film, something had come up and I was doing something in London. I think I was working on The Ritz in London. Anyhow, the point is I had never seen my movie. I had never seen that movie. And and because it was such a small part, I didn't think I'd have much of a credit. You know, it'd be like... You know, well, when because there weren't many people in that movie, when the credits came out, and I'm sitting in London, looking at this thing, and when the credits came out, there were my name was with several other names, but it was big, <laughs> and do you know what I did when I saw my name, I went, <laughs>
0: can you believe? <laughs> Well, so here's another one where if people go back and watch this, it's not, again, these are before the parts got larger, but pretty amazing movies you're in. This is 1976. You are one of the cops Uh, who caught the Watergate burglars in Alan J. Pakula's All the President's Men. Pakula, he was a a
1: great director to work for, a wonderful, wonderful man. And that becomes one of the things I remember most about my work is that people you enjoyed working with, and I've had some good luck, some bad luck too, but some good luck, you know, and he was one of those guys, real man, real human being, but that movie, I I was in it for just about a minute, but the research that went into it, you'd be, they wanted to make sure they got everything right because of the lawsuits, the this and that, you know, that's, they were very careful, they were so careful, we would shoot in the same room was where those things happened, and the, at, at the guy across the street who was looking there as the spy. he was in the same room at the holiday Inn where it actually happened. And yeah, and uh, I, I met the guy who I played. I got his hat. <laughs> I tried to get his accent, you know. And it was very I'm a serious actor. I am, that's it. But Alan, allowed, I'm gonna tell you a secret. <laughs> Alan allowed me to do something that I'd like to do for fun. I love my work, I'm a serious actor, I really am, but I'd like to have a good time. And uh, uh, there, at one moment in, uh, in this President's Men, I come up over the edge of this, it's in an office, and I, and I come up over with my gun, because I'm a cop, and they're breaking in, right? And I expected to see a bunch of street people busting in, trying to steal something, right? And I come over the top, and I see these guys with suits and ties, you know? And we took the shot again and again and again and again. And then we reversed the camera to show them. And all this time, it's over this barrier, right? So, and I, he said, try to make them surprised. I mean, really surprised. So I would say, Oh, you're under arrest. Drop that. You know, and I did it so many times. After a while, it's the same old thing. So one time I took my pants off. (laughs) And I said to them, I got no pants on. (laughs) I think that's the take they used. That's great.
0: You mentioned The Ritz. This is a part that you had played first on Broadway for France yeah, McNally. Yeah. Then they make a film version with Richard Lester. Right. This is Chris, a flamboyantly gay bathhouse proprietor. Right. I don't know if that part would be cast the same way today, but at the time, it, yeah. was, it was very well Obviously, Obviously, well, you and McNally, let's talk about that because you guys did several things together, right? I did more of his plays than any other actor. Yeah. Well, so we became very Just good friends. recently passed away. What made him so good? He was a human being. He was a humanist. Mm-hmm. He really
1: cared. He was a, an extraordinary man. If you have time, if you care, take a look at his bio. He's a, did a lot, accomplished a great deal. He was a, a very serious uh, gay activist, and uh, in the days when it was tough. And my character that I played was flamboyant. Uh, Chris was his name, and uh, the most flamboyant in the whole play, but. Uh, it was in a gay bathhouse, so there were a bunch of men walking around with just towels on. It was uh, based on a place called. Uh, it, it was a, it was a very famous men's bathhouse where Bette Midler used to entertain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, good old Bette. And uh, anyway, uh, what th- uh, the conceit of my character, what what Terrence had in mind was to make this big play it was a farce full of a bunch of crazy people running around. And the sanest person on the stage was this very flamboyant gay man. What he was trying to say was, this is a human being. He's a man. And he's the only one who really has his brains not scrambled. Anyway, as you say, I don't know if we could play that today, but uh, it was a, I, I love doing that part. Sure. And by the way, I I, uh, I, I I should say this. Um, I was in very good shape, and uh, and, and I, I loved walking around showing off my body. You know, it's great. <laughs> but the people who came backstage to say hello to me after the during the after at the, at the stage door up to my dressing room were women. <laughs> Men didn't come backstage. The gay men, I think they were afraid to be associated with someone who was so out. They all thought I was gay, I suppose. But why the women came back, I never understood. <laughs> Maybe they were trying to convert me. <laughs> I mean, really, I,
0: I go get it. I'm, they never came back when I did Cyrano. <laughs> well, let's, let's, you know, there are these moments that we've been referring to that exciting opportunity, small but exciting. However you started to have a, a young family, I, I, some children, a, a wife, um, and at a certain point, I believe around 1978, there was some kind of a conversation where this was not going the way you wanted it to be going, or what was it where you kind of had to reevaluate? I think you started staying at home, right? And your wife went to work. Yeah. I decided that... Uh, I was doing a lot of
1: commercials, and uh, I decided that the, the, the movie roles were not really... I, would, I wanted bigger things, I wanted better things, and I was gonna hold out for bigger, bigger, better things, but they weren't coming my way, and I also thought that I was becoming slick in my technique because the commercials were so easy, and it was a way to make money, which was necessary, but I thought it was a danger, and I should start studying again, so I did. And um, uh, the idea that you can be so arrogant, and it does take a bit of arrogance to be any artist, I think. You can't forget the humility, but the arrogance is necessary. And I always knew I was going to be successful, but it was a long time coming. But I kept holding out and insisting, I don't want that part, I want that part... And that's what happened when Amadeus came along.
0: But first, it, the absolute, we're going to do a lot of applause for Amadeus in a second, but right before Amadeus was Scarface. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so just to remind people again, you're back with Pacino 10 years after Serpico. This is playing a guy, Omar Suarez, an underboss, to the rich drug dealer Frank Lopez, played by Robert Loggia. This is uh, Brian De Palma, 1983, and you, as you said at the beginning, this is you playing a, a character who, you know, was, uh, had an accent like you grew up with. What else do you remember about the making of Scarface, including what you heard about in the middle of that? I think that was where Amadeus first came up, right? Yeah. Um, I, was, um,
1: I, was audition- I auditioned for uh, Scarface. Uh, it, was a, it, it was an improvisation. In uh, Brian De Palma's apartment, uh, and with Al, and uh, the audition went uh, well, and uh, I, I was waiting to hear from from him when when Milos Foreman who was going to cast this part uh, of Salieri, was was uh, sending out a message to. Uh, did the casting agents in those days, and maybe it's still happening, what they would do is uh, gather uh, four or five or six actors and ask them to do an improv around a, a given scene, and from those four or five, they would decide who they wanted, and they would call it down and down and down. And I was asked to come in to be one of those bunches of people, and it's you know it's more as, it, it's it, it's 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 an opportunity to meet Milos Foreman for one thing, but I said. This role of Salieri is the one I want. I was nobody. And I said, uh, it's going to go to a British actor. I like the British actors, generally, I do. But I don't think they're better than American actors. That's I think we do Shakespeare better than they do. Because, no, because, because we, we bring a new energy to it, a new, a new some real, real guts to it. I almost said balls, but you can't say that anymore. <laughs> Real, you bring some real energy and some real we bring a newness. They've been doing it for hundreds of years. Anyhow, the point you get my point. We do it. Um, uh, never mind. Uh, <laughs> I just felt I was not about. Oh, by the way, one of the ra- ways I got rid of my Mexican accent was to listen to British actors. I listened to uh, Gilgood and Olivier, and uh, and Robert.
0: Uh, and Richardson, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Richardson was one of my favorites. And then after that, Barrymore, an American, and then I I almost worshiped those guys. And then when Brando came along, I said, that's it. (laughs) Anyway, the point I'm making is, I didn't want to go up and try to get a supporting role for another British actor. The first British actor who did the role in London won the top award. He didn't do it in New York. Ian McKellen did it, a nice man, by the way. A guy I can call my friend. He did it in New York. He won the top honors in New York. So I, and it was a British writer. The point is, it was going to be a British actor who got the part. (laughs) And I didn't want to do that. And uh, I said, no, I want to do that role. Tell him I want to do. He called me again. Not me, but, well, maybe me. The point is, I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the third call, he said, I want to see you for the role. So... I went to his apartment. I got the sides. We discussed it. Uh, we ran over the scene briefly. And then a couple of days later, uh, we were going to do a taping of it. It was tape in those days. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, it was videotape. Anyhow, the point is, uh, it, was a, it was a thrilling time for me. I mean, it was really... But, the, but I got I to tell you, that play... Was successful worldwide. It was. It was. Uh, no matter in, in over 30 languages, and it seems like everyone who played Salieri won the top honor. <laughs> so that when Milos was casting Salieri, every actor in the world wanted that part, including L. Right, L. But you know, yeah, everybody. Right, and he had his choice of the biggest box office actors in the world. And some of those very famous people came to the auditions, I was told, with their own makeup person. With, and sometimes with a costume. They really wanted, the point is, he had his choice. So I showed up at the, at the taping bunches of actors at this one big place, you know, one, next, next, for different roles. And I went in, and I, I did the thing I had worked on. I happened to do it with an actress I knew. Little scene, Uh, the scene where he reads Mozart's music for the first time. Do you remember that scene where he's looking at the pages? That's the scene I did. And uh, uh, then he dismissed the actress and said, "All right, Marie, do the old man." And I said. I didn't even look at the old man. Let me, let me go look. He said, no, 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 just do it. So I did it. And when I got through doing it, faking it, you know, I looked up to see what his reaction was, and he was gone. He wasn't even there. So I figured he hated it. So I went home, and then two days later, he called me and says, I want you for the part. That's awesome. Then there's more so I said you want me for the part but there's something you're saying what's next he says no we have to the writer has to agree and the producer has to agree the producer it's big money and I thought well that's it forget it and in the meantime while all this was going on Brian had cast me in Scarface and he was waiting for me to answer I had a family I need the money and I said Brian very nice man Brian I said, Brian, I, can, you, can you give me some more time? He says, why? He says, because I got this other thing that may happen. He says, what other thing? I said, Amadeus. Well, <laughs> I'll give you some more time. I'll give you as much time as I can. But you got to come up with an answer. Meantime, they were negotiating. And Saul Zance was the producer. A very tough negotiator. And negotiating. And they, I said, look, you got to tell me. They didn't tell me. So I took Scarface. Of course. Not ashamed of it. I'm happy about it it's a great movie and working with you know some good actors and making some money making some money paying the rent and uh, we went to LA to sh- to work for one week rehearsal on the film as though it were a play Al had insisted and um, and he was powerful enough to get that's a very expensive proposition a whole company of people f- flown to the coast put up Paid for a week of rehearsal? Unheard of. Anyway, we were doing it and it paid off. It was a good movie. And uh, in the middle of the week of rehearsal, I got the call that I was going to do Salieri. So uh, when that happened, word spread very quickly and people were coming over saying, You know, nice things. They were happy for American, you know. And and I started getting offers to go for here and there. Would you like to have a ride? Would you like to, know, this guy to come on and dinner? And it it was okay. But Al came over and said, Murray, don't try to carry the whole movie on your shoulders.
0: Just do your work. He's a good man. Yeah. So if there's anyone who hasn't yet seen Amadeus, I... I am almost envious because the first time is going to blow your mind, as will any subsequent times. But just for background, Salieri—maybe in real life his dynamic with Mozart was not as extreme as it was from Peter Schaffer—but great drama. So it becomes—he's this in the movie, in the uh, even more so than I think even on stage, composer who sees with envy when. Mozart comes along, this younger composer, uh, and Salieri cannot understand how God could give so much talent to such a, a potty mouth, A potty mouth. whereas here's this devout guy, Salieri, who is not as talented, right? So I just want to ask you, first of all, when, if people may wonder, because you, you referred to the fact that Milos Foreman coming off of... One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, which had swept the Oscars. Then two sort of disappointing things with hair and ragtime. But now he can have anybody he wants, and and he chooses two actors for the leads who are not household names at that time. Yourself and Tom Hulse. If people are wondering why, here is a quote from Milos in the New York Times in 1984. Quote, the role of Salieri is possibly the most flashy stage role of the last decade. It offers great opportunities for broad, stylized flowery acting, but that wouldn't do on screen. I felt in the movie all the intensity of Salieri's obsession had to be reflected in the actor's face. Murray had that quality from the very first reading. Close quote. So that, have you, have you seen that? I promise
1: you, that's the first time I've heard that. Wow. I no, I am, because I I'd love compliments. I mean, you know, like Mark Twain said, if I don't get them, I pay them to myself. <laughs> but he never, Milos never paid me a compliment. No, he didn't. The closest he came to it was after the Academy Awards speech. He said, that was a very good speech. <laughs> but I found out later that that's the kind of man he is. He was just very, but that, that makes me well up a little bit. Let me finish this story about, about shooting Scarface, though. They cast me. In, uh, and it was shot in Prague, but I was already contracted to do Scarface, so I actually shot those two movies at the same time. <laughs> I shot in Prague, then they would fly me to Hollywood, and I would do this drug dealer, then I'd fly back, and I'd do something yeah, <laughs> back and forth. And it, it may sound like a hard thing to do. It was easy, because the parts were so different. I mean, if they were similar, it would have been more, more, more tricky you know to find the difference it was it was a, like a vacation to go from that co- costume drama spending your time in that long flight back to study the next character and it was the same back and forth it was very glamorous it was it was like hollywood yeah yeah it was like <laughs> it, it was like that thing that i had been saying to myself or knowing
0: for all those years i can do this yeah, yeah. now <laughs> The fact that you guys were shooting in Prague, serving as Vienna, was remarkable in and of itself because Milos at that time had not been back to Czechoslovakia, right? He had fled and would have risked jail had that happened. right? That's absolutely right, yeah. He yeah, was still under communism. Right. They would have thrown his ass in jail. Yeah. They had a lot of work to get them to agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was a tough customer. Well, and and to that point, I wanted to ask you when he didn't like something you guys were doing during production. That's terrible!
1: (laughs) You're acting way too much! (laughs) He would never say terrible. He said, no, no, no! (laughs) He was, he was... And he had this big voice, this wonderful voice. (laughs) God, the women loved him. (laughs) Yeah, he really loved women, too. Well, so... The audition you mentioned he had he had <laughs> it, it, when he was married, you know he when he left Czechoslovakia, he couldn't go back because he they, he'd throw his ass in jail, so he had a family there, and he had had twin twin boys, and when he got to America and set up his life here, the woman he married here had twins <laughs> oh my God. amazing. I only
0: say that because uh, I loved him, yeah, I owe him big time now you mentioned at the audition he kind of asked you or one of the meetings the auditions um, you know you were going to have to play this man Salieri by my math I, I guess he would have been in his 20s 30, 30s at the, when he's younger in the film and then 73 when we see him later on I know you've done a lot of theater you've done a lot of stuff but had you ever had a challenge like that to play there's, there's all kinds of physical aspects of that too right? No 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 I'm not
1: first of all I may tell you about a challenge. If you've got a good script, it's not a challenge anymore. I mean, I'm telling you that sincerely. Uh, it, it's, and that's a great script, but uh, written for actors. But the thing about the age was getting the voice right. I had to work really hard to get that. It was the makeup that made the, made the day. It was the genius creator uh, who did it. I mean, Dick Smith was known as the genius, and he really created prosthetic makeup. Our first session to make the old man's makeup was 14 hours long. Yeah, and the next one was 12. Shall I tell you why? Please. You want to hear why? Because <laughs> I, I, I do talk a lot. This is good. This is great. Okay. <laughs> the difference between... the What makes that great prosthetic process work. Otherwise, it looks like a mask. You know, those masks you buy in the store, and you it doesn't move. What you do is lay in little strips of very thin prosthetic material right where your musculature is, so that when yours move, it moves. And that makes it alive. But that means hours and hours of laying it in. And uh, when I got through... Each day, when we finally got it perfected, took four and a half hours. Every single morning before we began principal photography, four and a half hours in the chair, and then we work. But that's not a bad thing. In fact, when I got up out of that chair, I looked, I looked at myself, and he put these lenses in my eyes that looked like they were glaucomish. And I could see this old man looking back. So I knew that was taken care of. <laughs> I, I, I believed it. It was just the voice I had to do. And I loved that old man because he was so funny. But uh, let me, I'm, I'm going on and on because I wanted you to know that uh, I won an Academy Award with that makeup. But so did many other people with Dick Smith's makeup. Uh, Dustin Hoffman. He did it for him, for a little big man. He did the makeup, the old man makeup for Marlon Brando and Godfather. Marlon Brando had old man makeup on, mm-hmm. and Dick did that. Anyway, it's not an accident that he was a makeup man. A big part, yeah, for interesting. Academy Award winners.
0: When you're making that movie, um, you made a decision to not live with any of the other people. Yeah, yeah. What was that about?
1: We were in Prague for about six and a half months, and uh, it was. When I say under communism, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to start dashing anyone. And the point is, uh, it was hard for the Czechs to live under the heel of the Russians. They were treated badly, but uh, and, and the amenities were not great. But there were a few first-class, so-called first-class for their uh, hotels, and they were always filled with hookers. I mean, that, they had to make a living. There's no, you know, I don't mean filled with liquor. Sometimes you had to ask if they would give up their seats so you could have some breakfast. But the point is, it's one of those unfortunate things. When there's no money around, you do what you have to do. But uh, they lived there in the Intercontinental Hotel, all of them. And I lived in an old, old hotel, ex Grand Hotel, because I thought it was what... The kind of living Salieri would do, with chandeliers, and it was ratty tatty, but it was still kind of grand. But also, also also it was separate.
0: Yeah.
1: It was. I didn't want to deal with anyone else because I thought Salieri was separate. He loved the church. He was devoted to it, but he was alone. And uh, I think it paid off. I, I mean, Tom Hulse and I, we never had anything to do with each other except on camera. Uh, no, no we like each other. It was fine, but that had nothing to do with like or dislike. I became very
0: good friends because of that with the Czech society, which was pretty neat. So the film eventually comes out with a part that you, going in, knew had the potential to oh. change your life. Now you go to you see it like everybody else, go to see it on the big screen. What was that like? And and, and just even you know having a substantial part on screen for really the... Uh, not that there were. I guess size is not the only criteria, but you had, you had. I, I guess it must have been different than anything you'd seen before. What was your evaluate, What was your experience of seeing yourself in this movie? All I saw was the mistakes.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say that, and I'm not being modest. I'm not. am not. I'm not mo- I'm. Not, I'm a humble man now, but then I wasn't so humble. But I know the work. And there are things that make me cringe. It's hard for me to watch it. There's some good stuff, too.
0: <laughs> I
1: like the old man best, but uh, there's only one perfect performance in that movie, I think. And that was... Uh, uh, that was The Emperor. He's uh, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. He's perfect. Did you know, interestingly enough, uh, the guy who played The Emperor... Shame on me. It's I li- Jeffrey Jones. Jeffrey Jones. Yeah. Uh, his uh, profile... He would... He, he was given to wear a medal from the period with uh, the uh, profile of the emperor there, and he has the same profile as the emperor. <laughs> it's kind of extraordinary. Oh, and something else. Uh, when we were on the set, uh, rehearsing a bit before we began principal photography, uh, there was a portrait of uh, Rondo uh, the guy who played Mozart's father, in, in his apartment house, you know, and it was because he loved his father. And uh, when when Roy came to the set one day, one of the Czech actors said, uh, not Czech actors, Czech uh, 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 craftsmen said, "Gee, isn't it lucky they found an actor who looks just like the portrait?" <laughs> isn't
0: that charming? <laughs> so you get all kinds of recognition from critics. Obviously, it's a uh, hit movie. Various awards, including the Golden Globe leading up to the Oscar nomination, and then going there as a Best Actor nominee in the same category as your co-star, Tom Hulse. And Shirley McLean comes up and announces that the Best Actor of the Year for 1984 in early 1985 is F. Murray Abraham. And I wonder... What do you remember most about that night and including your interaction with Shirley? I, I, I hate to say it. It was kind
1: of fuzzy in my mind, my memory. I remember the things that happened, but I was just going through it, being led here and there. But I do know that my wife was kind of shook me to let me know that I was the one, you know. Because you don't... All the time leading up to that, all the, the weeks and weeks where people are, you know, talking about it, you try not to think about it because you don't want to be so disappointed you, you, you try to think about anything else you pretend that it's okay if you lose and you say i'm not going to make a speech i'm not going to make it up in my mind i'm going and you wake up in the morning with a speech coming out of your mouth <laughs> your subconscious is doing, i'm telling you or, you, or you're, you're in the middle of the day and you're having, and you're, you're trying to eat and you're, what am I going to say? <laughs> it's like you don't want to jinx it, but you jinx it. And <laughs> that's it. I don't know how to describe going through that process is. I wasn't blasé. I wasn't matter of fact. And surely McLean helped a lot. She was a real wonderful lady. She had something to say. Yeah, she said, Murray, we had we had seen each other a couple of times in New York before that, and she said, Murray, you're going to win because I am saying a mantra for you. <laughs> anyway, she said, Murray, when she gave me the award and we went walking off, she said, don't take the first thing they offer you.
0: Because this is supposedly, you know, this moment that. You know, you, you can go in many different directions after that. You were 45 on Oscar night when you won. How do you think the Oscar affected you personally and professionally? Well, first
1: of all, it made me uh, insufferable.
0: <laughs> it's hard to admit, but I really began
1: behaving like I knew everything. I I, I had forgotten humility. I had forgotten. I didn't even think about it. I mean, I did it. I, now, now I was full of myself. Now I was reading all these accolades and believing them instead of going on with my work but uh, uh, I can see now that I I was not someone I would like to have been hanging around with I hate to admit that but it's true I mean the next time I win one it'll be be different (laughs) there we go but uh, <laughs> you got to think that way, man. Come on. But there was something that Bogdanovich yeah. said about yeah, yeah. becoming famous.
0: He said it's dangerous because you begin to believe that you know everything, even the stuff you don't know. You well, be- in, with the, now the benefit of hindsight of going through that experience with, you know, you, you did a lot of stuff that was creative in the immediate aftermath of Amadeus in those first years. You went and taught. Not, not too many best actor winners go right away And go to be a professor at Brooklyn College Like you did um, You were doing Off-Broadway uh, right again You didn't stop your desire to do theater Which obviously is not as lucrative usually as film um, but the first time after Amadeus that you were on the big screen again was in The Name of the Rose. That's in 1986. So you had, the mo- Amadeus came out in 84. You win the Oscar in early 85. And then not till 86 do we see you in a movie again, this time opposite Sean Connery. And you have said that in some ways, even if – and I don't know the specific case with you who this person was or, or if it even is related to, to – but you've said – for other people who go through an Oscar experience, your agent should should be maybe a bit more proactive than yours was in the immediate aftermath? Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I I don't regret what I did, but uh, because there were things I was just turning down right and left, because I didn't want to be another supporting actor, even with some great films. I didn't want to do this, I didn't want to do that. It wasn't good enough. It wasn't as good as... You know, Amadeus, which not, nothing much is. Right. But I was sure something like that was coming along, and I was being very above it all. If I had had a better uh, mentor or some advisor to say you really should take this in order to work with this director because it's, a, it's an A film, and you, you should strike while the iron is hot. But I was above that. I was that arrogant thing, that super arrogant thing. And I, it was a mistake. It was, uh, I mean, for, it's hard to say it was a mistake because I did some pretty good plays in that time too. 90 bucks a week. Mm-hmm. But after a while, I began to realize I, this agent wasn't working out for me and I was sticking to him out of loyalty. I'm a very loyal man. And uh, that's a mistake. This is business. And what happened is I said, well, there's some offers coming in from Europe. And they were like $100,000 a day. And I, I said, yes. And some of them, you know, these great extravagance, extravaganza movies, nothing to be ashamed of. But still, the point is I started to make some more money and it was in Europe and a lot of connections through Italy. Most of my connections were there. And I began to work all over the world, which is something I've always wanted to do. I mean, I shot pictures in Sri Lanka, in Russia, in Mongolia. The point is, I was seeing the world and getting paid quite a bit of money for it. But if you, if you, if you disappear from the scene long enough, they forget you're around. It, it's obvious, right? And finally, after several years, the phone stopped ringing. And then I, I got another agent, and things popped.
0: Now, just ju- like that. Just because I think this is so cool that you did this. During some of those years when you were primarily back doing theater, your Oscar made a few cameos, right? <laughs> Oscar has been so
1: good to me <laughs> that he has appeared in every single play I've ever done. <laughs> the audience can't see him. It's all for the actor's benefit and for backstage. He's appeared in trash cans, in drawers, in suitcases, and it like is a surprise when the actor discovers it. An Oscar in my suitcase, and and then I hand it over to the stage manager, and that's that's your property. If as long as you want it, then I'll you know take it home when you're done, and and the uh, wardrobe people would design little costumes for him. He's been, he has a tutu. He, he's been a beach bum. <laughs>
0: anyway. That's great. I, you know, you can't take it too seriously. It's wonderful and it's fun. But every play I've ever done. I love it. Well, so I'm going to make my way like we did earlier with some of the, some of, you know, the parts en route to, uh, obviously we're, I want to make sure we talk a lot about the White Lotus, but just a few of these other notable parts on screen over the years. You were in Last Action Hero opposite Arnold Schwarzenegger. You were the duplicitous best friend there. That's 1993. Anything you want to briefly say about working with Arnold? It was nothing but a treat.
1: He's an absolute professional. He's a positive thinking man, and he's great to be around. has a good sense of humor. I really, really liked him. I'm glad to be able
0: to say that. Absolutely. Let's go two years after that. You were the leader of this... Greek chorus that was only Woody Allen could come up with this for Mighty Aphrodite <laughs> yeah. in 1995 yeah. um, anything you'd like to say about that one
1: that was, uh, that was fun, it was, the first time I was in Sicily was in that movie yeah, yeah. and uh, Woody saw me in a play called um, uh, Angels in America right, and, he, and he sent me a note he, he, thought, he said you're a charming performer and, and something just brief like that and uh, then he said, I, I want you to take a look at this script if you want to do it, fine, it's yours. But in Angels in America, I appeared in this puff of, at one point, in this puff of smoke behind a, 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 a bedstead. And uh, I would lay down behind the bedstead, and then the puff of smoke would happen. And on this thing, this pallet I was laying on, the uh, pulley that went downstairs to the basement would work And then when the puff of smoke cleared up, up, I would be up there, suddenly there, because of this pulley system and the thing coming up. When we went to the Greek theater, 2,500-year-old theater in in Sicily, which is still functioning, by the way. It's in perfect shape. I played the leader of the chorus, and coming up from the steps to get up onto the stage, which was exactly the way it was 2,500 years ago, There was a contraption, a mechanical contraption of pulleys that was exactly like the one in Broadway. It wasn't electronic, of course, but it was exactly the same system. Amazing, yeah.
0: All right, so two years after that, 1997, you were central to the first American movie of now one of the great filmmakers, Guillermo del Toro. This was Mimic. You're playing this Dr. Gates, and the thing that... I guess if if we talk about that movie for for a second, this was Guillermo working for Harvey Weinstein who made his life pretty unpleasant, took the movie away from him. I think he was fired. Then you guys, uh, the cast, I believe, kind of revolted in response to that, and he came back, but it was just not a... What what was your experience with Guillermo?
1: It was just uh, this. There's, there are maybe five or six directors I've worked with forever, for the rest of my life if I could, and he's one of them. Him, Wes Anderson, the uh, Cone Brothers. Uh, uh, I
0: think you like Gus Van Sant from Finding Forest. Gus right? Van
1: Sant yes. was terrific. Uh, Brian, I don't know if he's working anymore. He's pretty sick, but uh, Wes Wes is wonderful. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well that that does lead to. In the year 2000, Finding Forrester. You and Sean Connery are back together again. You're playing this professor who accuses uh, a kid of plagiarism. Van Sant, again, another guy between Goodwill Hunting and, and my own private Idaho. And so many movies. What, what makes him a, a director who actors love working with?
1: He likes actors. He <laughs> understands actors. And he gives them freedom to work. And you trust him. There are certain actors, uh, directors you just simply trust, and some you don't. And he's one of them that you do. Very gentle, soft spoken, smart
0: man. In the 2010s, you were a recurring part of the Emmy-winning drama series Homeland. You were playing Dara Dahl, this mysterious (laughs) intelligence agent. Um, Several Emmy nominations for that part. He was a mysterious guy, and I heard you may have come up with a bit of a backstory. Yeah,
1: (laughs) I'll tell you something about the woman, though, the star of that show. She's great. Claire Danes, yeah. She's great. She didn't... uh, that, That kind of intensity you saw here on the show, she brought that to rehearsals. She was ready. She was really... Yeah. Inspirational. Um, I thought that my character, Dara who I liked, um, was uh, not only a a bisexual, he was willing to do anything. He was really a dangerous man, and he was completely free with whatever he wanted, because he was a killer. But also, uh, I, I told the wardrobe people that I thought he wore ladies' underwear, (laughs) <laughs> and when I came to work the next day, they had sewed lace on my panties.
0: <laughs> some, of those, some of those scenes you saw, I was wearing ladies' underwear. Right. <laughs> Later that decade, you were a part of one of the funniest episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. This was 2017, <laughs> the episode called Fatwa, you and Larry David, and you end up performing a Hamilton-style rap uh, choreographed by Susan Stroman. Anything you'd like to? Well, I'd like say to talk. About how that?
1: about the guy my my opposite number?
0: Oh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Yeah, he's yeah. A great, great man, Lin
1: Manuel right. Miranda. He's, you'd like to hang out with him. Yeah, he's fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> he really is. A really straight ahead guy. But uh, it was just that it was uh, it was amazing to me that uh, that they produced this show. As many times as they do a year. And it's mostly improv. He's got these sketches, a couple of lines, this is it. And these are the lines I do want you to remember to say. Otherwise, shoot it. We didn't even rehearse. <laughs> Maybe we just get the cameras ready. Oh, and he'd say, okay, cut. Let's try it again. Do it this. Leave that up. Put this in.
0: It was amazing. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a great accomplishment. Nice. Well... You mentioned two other movies that last decade, um, Inside Lewin Davis in 2013. For the Coen brothers, you're playing yeah. the manager who eviscerates this aspiring musician. Uh, quote, I don't see a lot of money here after, <laughs> close quote, after it's a the great line, <laughs> it's, a, it's a great line. Uh, and that, you said, like, I think, like, perhaps just to bring it back to Amadeus, who was the m- model for this, for this manager, perhaps? I'd heard maybe Saul's aunt. Oh, it was Saul's aunt who was just kind of a, luckily he liked you, but he could be tough? I don't
1: know that he liked me. (laughs) I don't know that he liked many people, but I I was smart, though, and he had good taste. But he was in the movie business. He was a
0: tough, tough guy in a tough, tough business. Right. And then the year after that was, as you mentioned, Grand Budapest Hotel. Wes Anderson uh, nominated for a zillion Oscars, including Best Picture. You play Zero Mustafa, the owner of the Grand Budapest Hotel. I know you and Wes later did Isle of Dogs as well, which it took me longer than it should have to realize that I love dogs. But anyway, Um, so... Just working with Wes in a large ensemble, obviously we're going to come to another very large ensemble in a moment with the White Lotus, but just being a part of, being around so many other talented actors, what's, what's that like? Fun? No.
1: Wes is another, another kind of thing altogether. He's, I don't know how many of you know the, the terrific book by Saint-Exupéry, The uh, Little Prince. Well, he's the little prince grown up. He's this big, tall Texan who lives in Paris with this excellent taste and just wonderful to work with, and he insists on making a family of the people that are making the movie. We all lived in the same hotel, a little little boutique hotel. I mean, cast and crew, everybody. We all ate together in these big communal tables, and he would have some very famous actors come in for a day's work, two days' work. Take them longer to travel, than it did for them to work, to shoot. And they would do it for him in a minute. That's the kind of man he is. The same kind of family happened... Yeah. With White Lotus.
0: Yeah, with White Lotus. You and hotels. I guess we figured out the secret. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So. By the way... Yeah, please.
1: when, When Wes gets his family that he likes together, he wants to keep them, have them in every film he makes. And I was lucky enough to have been invited to be part of his family. And in the the most recent film he made, I, I forget the name of it. Uh, 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 it was in
0: Cannes last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: something, Anyhow, I was busy doing something, and he called me and said, Murray, I want you to be in this, but there's nothing in it for you, so I want you to come and be in it for one day. <laughs> the French dispatch. He said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, French dispatch. He said, would you like to come to Paris? <laughs> he said, the food is very good. <laughs> he's wonderful. Yeah. I said, Wes, that's the wrong day. Can you change the day? I'm busy. I can't get it. He said, he said oh, rats. <laughs> so I didn't do it. Well, what I'm saying is, he's that kind of loyal man. Nice. And with the, with the, um, oh, God, I keep forgetting. Well, with White Lotus, yeah. we all lived in that hotel you saw. It was off-season, so it was empty. We had it. Everybody, the cast crew, we all ate together in this one big, big uh, uh, wrestling area. We all uh, we we lived together. We ate together, and we worked together. And it was just uh,
0: my idea of what it is, a real community. So this is going to bring us now to the year for which you are being honored here today as the Outstanding Performer of the Year. So there were three things, as I mentioned. Not So White Lotus will, will be our closer. Let's just first note, Moon Knight, this is a Disney Plus limited series. You're playing the voice of Conchu, a giant with a bird skull for a head who saved Oscar Isaac's character, turned him into his avatar. You were essentially being asked to come in and provide a voice, and it became... Just a, a Emmy nomination, right? A whole yeah, whole thing for, for a voice. Yeah, but tell us
1: about. Oh, that. listen, man, listen. This is this is fun. I, I was getting for that voice. I got uh, mail from China. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew the Chinese are watching this Marvel comic hero? <laughs> and also, it was it's Oscar Isaac, by Oscar, the way. right? Back from Back Lou, to after Oscar. eviscerating him in Lou and Davis. Yeah. Yes. But let me tell you, this. Uh, I live in Manhattan. I live on. Uh, New York University area, mm-hmm. and the film students shoot in the area. And I went over to my, one of my favorite restaurants to have lunch, and they were shooting a, a movie there, this student film, but it was big. I mean, a lot of kids, but it was they, they were really extravagant. And I uh, I was looking at, at the restaurant, and I, one of the filmmakers came over and said, are, are you in this movie? And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm just here trying to get some lunch. He said, uh... I, I know who you are, though. You're, um, uh, you're um, and some other film came over and says, don't you know who this is? This is the voice of Khonshu. <laughs> that's a true
0: story. Oh, that's great. <laughs> okay, so that's project number one of three. Number two of three, also on TV, also streaming with a TV Plus uh, channel, Apple TV Plus, the comedy series Mythic Quest. It just recently did its third season, but you were voicing, or excuse me, you were playing C.W. Longbottom, a sci-fi novelist who writes the backstories for video games, sort of the, the thing that nobody wants to deal with, and he's, he's this eccentric guy. Anything you want to say about that? It
1: was one of the most fun times I've ever had. It was a wonderful bunch of people. I'm sorry that I'm not part of it anymore.
0: It's one of those things. So that was number two of three, and now we get to really focus on this HBO limited series, second installment of it uh, from Mike White, the White Lotus. You are playing Bert DeGrasso, a man on vacation with his son and grandson, who, uh, let's just list a few things that he does. (laughs) He charms, he flirts, he says inappropriate things, he farts, he has a twinkle in his eye, on and on we could go. Uh, how did you first hear about this part? And how many seconds did it take before you said yes?
1: As soon as I read the script, I said, <laughs> yeah. but, it'll lead me on. I right. mean, it's, uh, it, it, you don't find good writing like that everywhere, anywhere. I mean, television, movies, any, this is particular. But uh, the, uh, the trio of us, the other men, my, my son and my grandson, we became very close. We had plenty of time together and we, we liked each other. So we began to really bond, and they've both become good friends of mine. And I'm glad to say, it doesn't always happen. But uh, I really hate that I can't do it anymore. (laughs) I, I enjoyed it so much. I mean, being in Sicily for four months, man... I mean, it was like heaven.
0: Now, just a and with second. people you like, you he know. He brought Jennifer Coolidge back for a second season. Why can't he bring you back for it? Well, uh, you, can you see this guy in Japan? I, I don't know if that's where they're going to go.
1: <laughs> but uh, I'd do anything. I mean, I, I'd do anything.
0: Work to work for Mike White. I'd do anything. Nice. Um, Almost. Well, let me ask you to. <laughs> let me ask you. I mean, on the surface, this is a. a limited it's now an ongoing series features attractive people in beautiful places doing funny things but at the end of the day i think it's really also quite a social commentary each both seasons so far i mean we've had parasite we've had triangle of sadness and we've had the white lotus all of which i think have asked us to think a lot about class yeah yeah
1: Yeah, well it did display it i think yeah, yeah. I don't think we were nominated for a comedy series. It was it was tra- it was drama. Drama series this season. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Oh, by the way, um, I while we were isolated in this fabulous hotel, which used to be it was originally a convent, a great big convent converted to this extravagantly beautiful hotel overlooking the Ionian Sea. Uh, anyway, we were the only tenants for several months and we were tested three times a week for COVID everybody I mean you know you can't mess with that stuff right so we were all fine until they had to start opening the doors to their paying their their other regular customers a lot of rich people who want to come and you know get their money's worth They, they made reservations months before the point is once they open those doors those people are not being tested three times a week so uh, several of us got the virus, and I—it was my last day of shooting. Mine and Michael, Michael Perioli, and Perioli, yeah, yeah. we both were tested positive the day we were shooting our final day. I had another movie to go to in in uh, Rome, at the time. I had to; those plans had to change. But my point is, I was isolated as as was as was uh, Michael for nine days, nine days, and. Uh, Where else in the world do you want to be isolated? (laughs) I had this hotel with this big terrace. (laughs) I mean, a ridiculously big terrace. And there was the sea. I mean, 15 feet. I said, okay. COVID's not so bad. I'll take the virus. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Last two things for me. Um, is there perhaps a line from the show that you are most often asked about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what it is. Well, I've got to confirm it with the source. Let's see if I can remember it.
1: We, when we, we were discussing at the table, the three of us, we were discussing... Uh, oh, I should mention Adam DeMarco is my, my grandson. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a wonderful. And a hockey player. Mm-hmm. I happen to like hockey. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Uh, he's discussing uh, the, uh, the beauty or the non-beauty of a penis, <laughs> and and he's and I said, what? What do you mean beauty? It's a penis. It's not a sunset. <laughs> is that a great line? <laughs> that is. <laughs> you know, people in New York, they'll come up to me and they, you know, right after it was shot, they say, hey, penis. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great. Last question for me. Uh you know, here we are as I said, I think 52 years into your career that we've been talking about for the last hour or so. Um when you look back at all that we've been talking about, all all of these accomplishments and the fact that you clearly still have the the hunger for it, I guess Give us your state of the union right now. I mean, you're 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 I'll pretty, tell
1: you very yeah, simply. Yeah. I'll tell you the same thing that I told Mike White the last day I was on the set, I was saying, "Mike, can we shoot this thing all over again?" Yeah. That's how I feel about my life, my career. The same way. That's I just awesome. want to do it again.
0: That's great. <laughs> Mary, I wanna on behalf of everybody thank you for doing this, and it is now my great pleasure to introduce the two ladies behind this great festival. Please welcome Kathy and Robin Beck. Former of the Year Award for White Lotus. This is cool. thank you
1: so much. Thank you. Thank you. I gotta gotta be a shout out to to uh, to Robin and Kathy for who are the founders of this. And uh, also, a shout-out to um, Scott Feinberg, Hollywood Reporter. And also to the, the, the wonderful people who are connected with, with the Boulder International Festival who have been so kind and generous to me and my granddaughter, Hannah, who's here. Thank you all. Listen, i got to tell you, there are many awards that are, uh, actors covet with good reason, because it can change your life. I have won some of those awards and it and it it has it changed my life all for the better, but I treasure this particular award for a couple of reasons first it 's not a contest i didn 't have to beat other actors to get it, but I mean you know it was a it was a nice gesture it was a nice thing for them to think of me for it, but also because I consider it they re, i regard it as uh a recognition of, of my performances, all my performances over the years. A recognition of my work. And my work is my life. I think you can see that. And I, 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 I can't tell you how much it means to me. All I can say is thank you. Thank
0: you. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in.